Good morning. We are going to be continuing with our study in Judges today. If you've got your Bibles, we'll be studying the 17th, 17th chapter. Uh, so if you want to open to your Bibles, Judges 17 would be a good place to be. Although, obviously, we're going to uh, go elsewhere every now and then, you know, just for cross-references. But for the most part, we're going to be uh, getting all the way through Judges chapter 17 today. Uh, last week, we finished up our study of the lives of the judges. Uh, we, we studied uh, all the judges so far. We're done studying the judges, the people who were raised up by God to lead God's people back to him. And uh, we did that by concluding our study of Samson's life last week. I think we had six lessons in Samson's life. And one of the things that we're supposed to see as we go through a book like this, go through the book of Judges, is that man cannot and will not be led to God by man. It's not going to happen. We've seen throughout the study of Judges, we've seen men and women from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of walks of life, all various walks of life, and, and however faithful or Faithless, they may have been in pursuing their calling by God. We saw that there was a continual pattern throughout this book where the judge would, would rescue them and it would only be for a short season. And then as soon as the judge died, in the next line we'd read something like this. And the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So none of the judges turned the people to God. None of the judges turned the people back to God. It didn't happen. Israel had a perpetual inclination toward idolatry. Last week, I was, uh, I was having a conversation after the service, and someone made note of uh, the fact that I preach fairly regularly on the, the subject of idolatry. And I, I can't deny it, it's true. I, I do preach on idolatry a lot. But the conclusion uh, that we came to was that we are all much more affected by idolatry than most people realize. We don't even realize that we idolize something. We don't even realize what the things are that we idolize and the ways that we practice idolatry. But idolatry is ultimately at the root of every single sin. So that means, being logical here, if idolatry is at the root of every sin, and if I sin every day, that means every day I am practicing idolatry. I'm idolizing something. So yeah, I, I preach frequently on idolatry, and that's because I believe that all preaching should really have two goals. Every single week, my, my goal is the same with every sermon, and I, I believe all good preaching has these same two goals. Number one, the goal is that after I'm done preaching, I hope, I, I, I pray that you hate your sin more than you did when you came in here. And number two, after I'm done, I hope that you love Jesus and see your need for Jesus more than you did when you came in here. I hope that when you leave here, you are more passionate about Jesus than you've ever been. That's my prayer. That's my goal. Now, somebody might ask, how could I possibly be an idolater? I don't have something, you know, I don't have anything set up in my home. I don't have like little idols, nothing carved, you know, nothing uh, molded, nothing like that. I don't have any idols like, you know, some religions will have idols. And the answer is that an idol isn't just something that's found on the shelf. An idol is something that comes from the self. Whenever you love something more than God, you're an idolater. So whatever you love in any given moment, whatever you love the most in any given moment, is your God, small g, or big g, depending on where your affections lay in that moment. Because we pursue whatever it is that we desire the most in any given moment. That's just basic human psychology, and the Bible teaches it. It's, it's clear as day. Whatever we desire the most is what we pursue in any given moment. But here's where it gets tricky. It's also possible, and it happens all the time, it's also possible to practice idolatry with God. After all, what's the second commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Is God in heaven above? God's in heaven above. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, we're all familiar with the first commandment, and that is basically uh, that you are to worship God only. You are to have no other gods before him. But the second one deals with worshiping him rightly. The first one is worship him only. The second one is worship him rightly. See, idolatry isn't just about worshiping God and God alone. It's also about worshiping him in a way that honors him. It's about worshiping him in a way that glorifies him. It's about worshiping him in a way that pleases him. Which means worshiping God, not on our terms, but on his terms. And the reason that God doesn't want us to make a carved image of himself to worship, just to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert here, but we're going to unpack it today. The reason is because no image could possibly portray or capture every attribute of God, every facet of his nature or of his being. So the very best that you could possibly come up with is an image that focuses on the aspects of God's nature that we're comfortable with, but ignores the parts of him which we might find uncomfortable or threatening. St. Augustine wrote back in the 4th century, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Is that up here? Good. Memorize that. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. So with this definition of idolatry in mind, there are endless possibilities to the things that we can idolize. You can idolize absolutely anything. And we also understand how we can turn God into an idol by trying to use Him for our personal gain. Rather than worshiping him just because he is who he is, we see that there might be some way that we could benefit from worshiping him. And that's idolatry. So what does that say about those who say they'll turn to God someday when they've had success in life, when they've experienced everything there is to experience in life? What does that say about them? It says that they're idolaters. What does it say about the person who says that they'll turn to God if he offers them a life which by their own estimation, by their own understanding, by their own definition is wonderful? It's idolatry. It says that they're idolaters. What does it say that if we feel like being a Christian should mean living in perfectly good health and wealth every single day and that God should prosper us materially and financially? It's idolatry. You get the point. Even Christians, even Christians struggle all the time with idolatry, just like Israel did. God is not a means to an end. But it's so easy for us to treat God like a means to an end. God is the means and God is the end. He's the be-all, end-all. He's not the means to an end. Now, as our study in Judges continues, we are coming now to what you would classify as the the final section of the book. And in a way, Samson's life was really the the conclusion to the study of the judges, the judges, the, the people who were raised up by God, as he was the final judge. He was the last one. And his death is probably the last chronological event of the book of Judges. So for that reason, the last four chapters of this book can be a little bit confusing uh, for some people because, you know, this is the book of Judges. Aren't we supposed to be studying Judges? And yet there are no Judges mentioned in these chapters. Well, the final four chapters are actually meant to be something of uh, kind of an appendix to the book of Judges. These aren't the days that are following after Samson's reign, most likely. Uh, rather, this is the, the author zooming in and allowing us to see, allowing us to take a closer look at the idolatry of just the common people in Israel, rather than just looking at the, the, ju- uh, the judges and their idolatry. Because 
if we didn't see the common people, we might be tempted to think, well, you know, maybe it was just the judges who had a problem with idolatry. But what we're going to see is that everybody had a problem with it. Now, the stories of the judges uh, showed us how God rescued his people. And the two stories that are found in these final four chapters will show us exactly what it was that God was rescuing them from. We're going to see exactly how badly they did need to be rescued. Now, because there's almost no mention of God acting or doing anything in these final four chapters, these chapters are rarely studied, and it's, it, it's very hard to find a sermon uh, based on these final four chapters on Judges, speaking from my own personal experience. Uh, I like to go in and listen to how other people preach the sermon or, or read what other people have said about you know, a, a various passage, and this is a tough one to find. Now, the first main character that we're going to meet in this appendix of sorts, if that's what you want to call it, is a man named Micah. And he shouldn't be confused. Don't get confused with this Micah and the Micah who has a book named after him. That's the prophet Micah. The prophet Micah was a good and godly man, but we're quickly going to see that that kind of a description cannot fit the Micah that we're going to meet today. So we pick up our study in the book of Judges, verses, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. There was a man of the hill country named, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So immediately, our, our first, impre- first impressions are, are a pretty important thing. And our first impression of Micah is not so good. Immediately we find out he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother. It sure didn't take us long to get that first impression and to see what kind of a person we're dealing with, did it? And at some point, Micah's mother called out a curse upon whoever stole it, and she whispered it in in his own ear, probably suspecting that it was him. And so in order to escape this curse, he fesses up to the fact that it was him. He was the one who stole it from her. So Micah is a pretty bad guy. But he's not as bad as he could possibly be. After all, he could have just said and done nothing and kept the silver for himself and taken his chances with this supposed curse on his shoulders. But we know that it wasn't his conscience that caused him to confess. It was his superstitious fear of something bad happening to him. It was the superstitious fear of there being a curse upon him. So his actions didn't flow from a desire to do good to others, but to prevent something bad from happening to himself. So how highly can we regard somebody like Micah? Not very high. It's, it's, it's hard to hold a person who would steal a, a huge sum of money from their own mother like this in very high esteem. Now, the, the, the name Micah, there's a little bit of irony here. The name Micah is probably short for Micah Yehu. Micah Yehu means who is like Jehovah. But the author of Judges and the scribes who copied what the author wrote over the centuries shortened it to just Micah which means who is like. They left God's name out completely. Most likely because it would have been considered blasphemous to have God's name connected to a person who does the types of things that Micah does. If the question is, who is like Jehovah, Micah's answer, judging by the story to come, would be something like, I am. Because Micah wants a God who's just like himself. Micah wants a God who can be manipulated and controlled. So in response to Micah's confession, if that's what you want to call it, 
His mother reverses the curse and declares, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Wow, that's all's forgiven. Everything's good. That was a, a quick and easy turnaround. No repercussions. No nothing. And she sounds so religious, doesn't she? She's using you know, the, the, the most religious terminology that she could possibly use. But there's a problem here. She's more concerned about getting her money back than she is about the character of her son. She's more concerned about these 1,100 pieces of silver than she is about the kind of man that Micah is. And so this is a recipe for absolute disaster. She doesn't demand any type of repentance to speak of, which means that Micah isn't going to learn anything here. Remember what Paul wrote to the, uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Paul said this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces, produces death. Now, on a practical level, we see that there are a lot of differences between godly sorrow and repentance and worldly sorrow and repentance. Worldly repentance would say this. It would say, I hate the fact that I got caught. Man, I wish I, I hadn't been caught. I, I regret the fact that I did this just because I got caught. Or I regret you know, a, a step that I took somewhere along the way that led to me being caught. But godly repentance is totally different. It goes to the root. And it says, it doesn't say, I, I, I hate that I got caught. It says, I hate my sin. I hate my sin. Why am I doing this? Why did I even do that? What was I thinking? I hate that I did it. I never want to do that again. That's godly repentance. And sadly, the word repent is not a word that gets spoken very often in churches these days. It is offensive. Because it won't draw masses through the door the way that doing a study on living a, a greater, more exceptional life will. It won't bring the masses in like a study about how God wants to help you fulfill your wildest dreams. People hate being told to change. And to repent means to change. But what was the first instruction that Jesus gave? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He said, repent and believe. Repent first and believe. So there's got to be some importance to that word, right? If it's the first instruction that Jesus ever gives as recorded in Scripture, it's got to be significant. So with this understanding in mind, let me ask this. Does, does Micah have a godly grief or a worldly grief? He's got a worldly grief. Because all he's concerned about is his own comfort, his own well-being, his own safety in the present moment. And Paul tells us where this type of repentance leads. It leads to death because it doesn't challenge us. It doesn't confront us. It doesn't force us to think about how badly we would need to put to death our sin. Now we all know that it's possible for a parent to badly damage emotionally, uh, to, to emotionally damage a child by, uh, by being too harsh with them, by being unforgiving with them. But what we're going to see here is that it's also possible to damage a child by just being too hands-off with them, being too laissez-faire lazy, lazy with them, never giving them consequences for their action, never uh, you know, teaching them humility, never teaching them what repentance looks like, always excusing, always justifying, even bad behavior on their part. And so her parenting doesn't excuse the type of person that Micah is, but it does help us uh, explain why Micah has some serious character deficiencies and why he is an idolater. Now, this is a family that doesn't worship uh, the, the gods of the land. Dagon, which we saw last week in, uh, in Samson's story, they don't worship the Ashtoreths or the Baals, at least not by name. They're worshiping Jehovah. They're worshiping the Lord, God, in name. But as we're about to find out, they have absolutely no idea who God is. They don't know 
how to honor Him. They don't know what could possibly please God. And they have no idea about what angers Him either. And it's frightening to see how many people in our own culture are guilty of the same thing, even all the while claiming that they're Christians because, well, maybe, you know, in certain areas of the country, they'll think that they're a Christian because they're an American. And we're an American country, you know, so of course we're all Christians. Or maybe they once said a prayer, but their lives have only given testimony to the fact that they are still dead in their sins. And they not only don't know how to honor or how to please God, but they don't care that they don't know what pleases or honors God. It's not a good place to be. But that's where where Micah and his mother are. So we read this, read this in verse 4. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. Isn't it interesting to see? She wants, upon getting this silver back, she says, I'm going to dedicate it all to the Lord but then we see two things. Number one, she actually only dedicates 200 of that 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord. And number two, she uses her riches to sin against God by creating this carved and metal image for Micah to worship. Now you might say she, she, she was obviously ignorant. She just didn't know. But ignorance is no excuse you remember Aaron? And when, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he's getting the Ten Commandments. You know, God's giving him the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's down there with the people, and he gathered the gold from the Israelites, and he threw it into the fire, and poof, out came this, this calf. Just magically, like, wow, you know, I didn't do this. It, it just came out by itself. And so Moses comes down, and, and he's mad. Because one of the commandments that he just received has already been broken. And he's like, you know, how did this happen, Aaron? And Aaron's like, I don't know. You know, I just I threw the gold into the fire and it just happened. Now, ignorance can explain, but it cannot excuse one's guilt. This was before the people of Israel even received formally the, the Ten Commandments. Moses was coming down the mountain when he discovered what Aaron had done. And I don't think that... Aaron's intent had been to to teach the people to be idolaters. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to lead them in in worshiping God. But while the calf might illustrate, I don't know, something about God's nature, maybe his deliverance of Israel, it couldn't simultaneously illustrate his omniscience. It couldn't illustrate his eternality. It couldn't illustrate his love, his omnipotence, his righteousness, his wrath, his holiness, or his aseity. Well, there's a big word. We covered this a couple weeks ago in small group. Anybody remember what aseity is? Aseity is God's self-sustaining nature, meaning he doesn't rely on anything outside of himself for his existence. Nothing brought him into existence. Nothing sustains his existence. That's called aseity. Now you guys know more than 99.9% of all Christians know or care about. It's not a big deal. But this is the problem with worshiping forged images of God. It's impossible to fully express the glorious nature of God and his different attributes with an image. How do you put holiness into an image? It's impossible. Ultimately, breaking the second commandment and trying to worship God by worshiping this image not only doesn't honor or please him, but it reveals a heart that refuses to submit to God just as he is in all of his glory, but which would rather pick and choose which attributes to focus on that are more palatable. Things that aren't quite so offensive. Things that make us feel good maybe about ourselves. Things that don't challenge us or confront us. But if it doesn't challenge us, it doesn't change us. The danger is that this means worshiping a lesser God. Or maybe even worshiping a completely different God. 
The second commandment deals with our desire to force God into a box that keeps us unchallenged, unchanged, and as comfortable as we can possibly be. But Micah's mother sins against God by breaking the second commandment, and she revokes her pledge for all the silver unto God. She reveals that in the depths of her heart, she wants a God who will accept her just as she is, which is a beautiful thing, but he's just going to leave her there. We love the song, you know, Just As I Am. It's a beautiful song, but the implication of that song is, you'll take me just as I am, but you won't leave me here. She wants a God who's just going to leave her right there where she is. That's the type of God that all of us would prefer to some extent or another, but it's a God that will not and cannot rescue. One of the consequences of this type of thing is that morality becomes very, very subjective. When you, when you par God down, when you, when you scale him down to a, to a lesser God, a more palatable God, morality becomes subjective. People do this all the time with the scriptures. You hear people making arguments for things that are clearly unbiblical. Clearly unbiblical. But it's because they've done this. They, they've scaled God down, and they've scaled down his word. They've subjectivized Morality. They focus on the parts of Scripture that don't challenge them and or they completely dismiss the parts of Scripture that make them feel uncomfortable. And this is exactly what Micah's mother has done. She worships God only insofar as his desires align with hers, freeing her to live however she pleases. So it'll be no surprise to see Micah doing the same thing. The most serious consequence of this type of idolatry is that it prevents us from having a full understanding of God. And if we don't have a full understanding of God, we're prevented from loving God exactly as He is, rather than as we wish He were. And this means that there is no chance for relational intimacy with Him. There's no chance for a relationship with God if we try to scale Him down. If you have a God who never contradicts you, who never challenges you, who never denies you of the desires of your heart, which aren't pleasing to Him, then ultimately you're worshiping a God who doesn't even really exist. Because when you scratch the surface of that type of idol, when you take off that top layer, what you find underneath is a mirror. A mirror that reflects yourself. And that is a lesser God, a God that cannot bless, cannot save, cannot redeem. And so Micah takes this idol and he puts it in his house. We continue, verses 5 and 6. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's the theme of the whole book. In those days, there was no king. God wasn't their king. Just saying. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But looking at this, these two verses, I mean, man, there are so many things wrong here. Where, where do we even start? Micah is an Israelite. He's an Ephraimite. He's one of God's people. But just like the judges, he looks and acts just like the world. He doesn't even have to leave his home to worship because he's got his own little shrine, his own little gods, his own little worship center in his own little house. Now we might look at that and think, you know, what's the big deal? Maybe the fact that he's got other gods in there. It's a big deal because God specifically told his people that they're not free to worship just anywhere and any way they want. God had specifically instructed that there was to be a central tabernacle that was to be set up around the cloud of glory. And if the glory cloud moved, the tabernacle was to be moved with it. And that was the only place where sacrifices were to be made. That was the only place where worship was to be conducted. But rather than making the weekly trip to the tabernacle to worship Micah, you know, he'd, he'd rather just stay home and, and worship God his own way. 
Because, you know, it's too much work to get the kids up on Sunday morning anyway. It's really his, his only morning to, to sleep in. And, you know, if, if he goes to the temple, he might miss the first half of, uh, of his favorite football team's game. It's just so much more convenient to stay home. So he sets up a shrine in his own home. What does this tell us about Israel? It shows us that their worship was being conducted according to their own personal preferences rather than according to the Word of God. They were worshiping God on their terms and they weren't even considering the terms that God had laid out for them. So who was it more about? Was it really about God or was it about themselves? And this is why I don't get people who are more concerned with with finding a church that entertains them and meets their personal desires for comfort and uh, more, more concerned with that than they are for finding a church that faithfully and rightly handles the scriptures. The fact is that our, our culture is just obsessed with, with personal preferences. Everything is about personal preferences in our culture, and we're not immune to that. How many of you guys have a customized computer? Yeah, like everybody. Everybody. How many of you guys got a car that fits your personal needs? Yeah, we, we personalize, we customize absolutely everything. Our culture's mentality is that, that the consumer is king, and the consumer deserves to have things done exactly the way they like it to be done. Micah would probably be a perfect fit in our culture. And the scary thing is, the danger is, that we might be a perfect fit in his culture too. And not only does Micah have this watered-down, powerless religion that revolves around his own personal preferences, but he also appoints one of his own sons as the priest to his little shrine. And again, I mean, this is an obvious one. This is violating what God had laid out, what God had instructed in his word, because only the, the, only the Levites were supposed to be priests. But... Micah's not a Levite, so his son is not supposed to be a priest. But a shrine needs a priest, right? Again, this just shows that the people in Israel weren't concerned with obedience to God. They weren't concerned with honoring him. They weren't concerned with glorifying him in the ways that he had instructed, because that would require things like submission and humility, That would mean that he's in control. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one who sets out the terms and conditions when man's human nature wants to be the one to lay out the terms and conditions of worship. And so instead, they have this custom-built religion standing on the foundation of personal preferences. The most frightening thing that we see here, which we also see in our own culture, is that the people are giving intellectual assent to God. They're, they're calling on Him by name. They, even, they worship Him in name. But they're not giving their hearts to God. They're keeping their knowledge up here, but not down here. They aren't submitting to His Lordship over every aspect of their lives. They are stubbornly turning away from Him. They're turning away from God. And turning away from God doesn't have to be a case of you know, converting to a different religion or, or to, to no religion or uh, to, to every religion. I mean, there are people like the Baha'i faith is really about every religion. So turning from God isn't just about that. Turning from God doesn't even mean that a person stops worshiping God. In fact, if Micah is a reflection of, of all of Israel, we could say, wow, they're, they're really religious people. You know, he's got a shrine in his own home. And so we'd say, you know, maybe on the surface, man, he... He looks really committed to God. He looks really religious. And he is religious. He he religiously worships a God that doesn't desire submission. He religiously worships a God that doesn't ask for obedience. Turning from God involves things that can't always immediately be seen on the surface. It involves rejecting the instructions from Scripture with which we're not comfortable. And just choosing to live and and worship on our own terms rather than on God's terms. That's what it means to turn away from God. 
Israel's religion of choice is our culture's religion of choice too. It's called selfism. Selfism. Doing what seems right in one's own eyes. That's it. That's the only doctrine of selfism. What seems right to you. Do it. It's a religion that might be exciting. It's a religion that might be enticing. It's a religion that's easy. It's a religion that doesn't place any demands on its followers. But it's not a religion that will bring about repentance. And for that reason, it's not a religion that will bring about redemption. Let's continue. Verses 7 to 10. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, the family of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he, he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. So as Micah is about to, you know, he's just going about daily life, he's, he's walking around town or whatever, and he runs into this guy, he sees this Levite walk by, he probably recognizes him as a Levite by his garb, he's probably dressed uh, in, in Levitical clothing, and you know, we'll just refer to this guy as, as the recent seminary graduate, <laughs> He's looking for a place, just any place. He's looking for a place to lay down some roots and and do God's work. This is interesting, though, because there were several Levitical towns scattered throughout the tribes of Israel. But Bethlehem, which is in Judah, where this guy comes from, was not one of them. So these people who were called to lead, lead God's people, the Levites who are called to lead God's people in living obediently and worshiping the right way were themselves not acting in obedience to God. Instead of living in places where God had ordained for them to be used, which is at a temple, the Levites were just going around wherever they wanted. And so Micah's thinking, hey, you know, I can hire this recent seminary graduate to work for next to nothing, and surely God will then bless and prosper me. Remember, how much is Micah's idol worth? 200 pieces of silver. That's 20 years of labor for this recent seminary graduate. And so in Micah's mind, his place of worship is about to be, become more, uh, more closely resembling the, the temple. You know, it's going to more closely follow the basic rules that God has given. But at the same time, he's still rejecting the underlying principle of God's instructions for worship. That worship must be done in accordance with God's terms as laid out in his word, rather than by our own human fallible understandings, ideas, and opinions. And Micah says, you can be like a father to me. That's a very, very interesting uh, bait. We'll just call that bait. Uh, you can be like a father to me, because then we read this in the next ver- in the next passage, verses eleven to thirteen. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, "Now I know that the Lord will prosper me." Because I have a Levite as priest. Did you catch that one part up there? And the young man became to him like one of his sons. This guy that he had baited with the promise, you can be like a father. So Micah lures this Levite, this this recent seminary grad, in with an offer that keeps him in poverty, relying entirely on Micah. It's an offer, he says, oh, I'll allow you to be my father and, and priest. But the reality is that Micah doesn't want a father. Micah doesn't want to submit to anyone. He doesn't want to submit to this priest because he doesn't want to submit to God. 
And so the roles get reversed. Rather than this supposed Levite, oops, that's a spoiler alert. We'll get to that next week. Rather than this Levite being like a father to Micah, Micah treats the recent seminary grad like one of his own sons. See, when our desire is to worship a lesser God of our own making, and when we're only willing to engage in worship that's in accordance to our own liking and our own preferences, the truth is we also want to be the mouthpiece of God. We want the mouthpiece of God to be under our control. We want to be able to manipulate what is said, what is done, all those things. And every pastor I've met, that I've had a conversation kind of about this subject with, has met this type of person, somebody who basically wants to be the pastor's puppeteer. The author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Obey those Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I think it's because of humility that verse doesn't get preached very often. And I'm not saying it should be. It's just something that we should be aware of. One of the many things that I appreciate about this church and and this congregation is that you guys give me good feedback, you give me good advice, uh, those are things that, that I need. You give me accountability, you know, these are all things that I need and welcome. But you have not told me what to preach, what to say from the pulpit. You haven't tried to control what is being taught, what is being said in God's name. There have been some that tried and they ended up leaving. There was a guy my first year here um, who wanted me to preach a mid-tribulation rapture. And I'm like, I, I don't even believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. How do, how do you want me to preach that? How's that going to work? You know? And when I preached a pre-tribulation rapture, what happened? He got all upset and he left. There was another guy who came like the first week I was here. I, I think he came because he knew it was my first week. And he tried to do the same thing. Again, he left. Now, I'm not saying that I, I, I'm above you know, accountability of any sort. I'm not saying that you shouldn't correct me if correction is due. If I were to just completely lose my mind and teach something that absolutely doesn't align with Scripture, please, you, you, you have every reason in the world to question me. And I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't have it any other way. But that's entirely different from trying to control or manipulate what does and doesn't get said or preached from the pulpit. And here we see that the goal of Micah's worship ultimately, which is the same goal that his mother had in her worship, is not to be pleasing unto God, but rather is to figure out a way to unlock even more of God's prosperous blessings, prosperous material blessings, in his life. He wants a greater treasure than he already has. He says, now I know that God's going to prosper me even greater than he already has because I have a Levitical priest in my little temple. He wants to be materially blessed. But he wants it with no strings attached. Ultimately, what he's revealing here is that he wants to manipulate God. He wants to worship God on his own terms. He wants to control God, but his desires aren't based on reality. They're based on wishful thinking. Idolatry is worshiping something that should be used or using something that should be worshiped. You see how Micah's doing that? He's using God. God is a means to an end for him. His end. Micah's end. It's all about Micah. See, it's tempting to think that if we just scale God down, if we just repackage God in a way that appeals more to our own selfish desires and preferences, worshiping in a way that that suits us, but doesn't consider what Scripture might have to say about it, 
It's tempting to think that, you know, somehow in some way we might have God under our thumb if we can just do all these things. We might think that if we just redefine God, tweak His nature just a little bit to fit our liking and to manipulate Him this way or that way, that God would owe us in some way, that He'd, He would owe us all of these blessings, all these things, all these material things that we desire. If we just redefine God in our minds, He will owe us these things. Micah's last statement here isn't unusual. It's not completely unique. In fact, we hear it from people all the time. If I do that, then I know God will do that. If I do this, God will do that. If I have real faith, God couldn't let me become sick or poor materially. If I give more in the offering, God will owe me. He'll have to prosper me. If I go to church more regularly... God will have to iron out all the details in my life. If I volunteer to serve in some capacity at church, boy, God will really owe me then. He'll, you know, maybe a bigger house, God, you know, I'll volunteer at church. How about a, how about a nicer car? If I say this prayer, God will have to forgive me. We see these things all the time in our culture. But this is not the way it works with God. We have no control over God. We are not autonomous. We are dependent on God every single moment of every single day. We have no control over God. He alone is sovereign. We cannot manipulate Him. His word doesn't mean just anything that we want it to mean. It doesn't mean something that we're comfortable with. You can do hermeneutical you know, gymnastics all day to make it say something and twist it this way and that way to make it say something, but ultimately it means only what he meant for it to mean. And that means that if it challenges you, if it makes us you know, uncomfortable, then we have to deal with it as it is. We have to wrestle with it until our comfort zone is expanded and our lives are changed because our understanding of God's word has changed. It's challenged us. It's changed us. It's grown us. See, legitimate faith in God seeks to surrender more and more and more of the heart to God's will, to faithfully doing what God calls us to do. Illegitimate faith in God seeks to have God surrender to us, surrender to carrying out our will. And every religion in the world has this in mind, has this one goal, to set God apart as somebody who will serve us, somebody who will do what I want, to get God to serve the individual in some capacity, But this is what sets Christianity apart. The gospel is not to have God serve you. The gospel is that the only thing that God owes you, the only thing that you deserve, is God's wrath. And yet, in His great mercy, He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the Father's wrath and to clothe in His own righteousness those who put their faith in Christ alone. He was crucified, he died, he was buried among the dead, but he rose again on the third day to prove that his work on Calvary, to prove that his work on the cross, on the behalf of his people, was sufficient for their justification and reconciliation with God. And he didn't move to some remote region of Europe to have a family with Mary, contrary to some of the fictional writing you'll read these days. He rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and 500 other people over the course of 40 days. And he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And thus, while we deserve rejection from God, we receive redemption from him by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To worship a lesser image of God is to worship a God who cannot bless you, who cannot help you, who cannot save you. And Micah, Micah's about to learn that lesson the hard way. So let us love the Lord 
and worship him, not according to our own personal preferences, our own personal comfort zones, but as he truly is, as revealed in his own holy word. Let us obey him and submit to his lordship more fully, not daring to scale him down, not daring to turn him into a lesser God. Because that's the type of faith that will cause a person to be changed, to be transformed. And that's the type of faith that honors, glorifies, and pleases God. And that, my friends, is what the whole Christian life is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this passage that's, that's difficult, which shows us so much about Israel's condition, but which also shows us so much about our own condition. And God, we confess that we all have our moments where we desire something more than you. Or maybe we scale you down and try to make you something that is lesser than you truly are. Lord, we pray that you would show us yourself in all of your glory. Bring us to an understanding and and acceptance of all of your attributes. That we may worship you as you truly are. That we may know you as you truly are, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just leave us where we are. You take us from where we are, Lord, but you don't leave us there. We thank you that you change us. You challenge us. And sometimes that's painful, Lord. I pray that by the power and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would persevere. That we would persevere through the changes and the challenges and the things that make us so uncomfortable, Lord. That we may grow in our knowledge of you. And that we may glorify you all the more. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.